Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To start the conversation right there, let's bring in David Page, shall we? AXA Investment Manager, US and a UK senior economist. Good day to you, David. Good to see you. Good morning. So let's start with the Federal Reserve's quote, shall we? And we'll take it from there. We are closely monitoring the implications of these developments for the US economic outlook. And as always, we will act as appropriate to sustain the expansion with a strong labor market and inflation near our symmetric 2% objective. Markets off to the races. My first thought, is anything new here? David? Yeah, no, I think it's interesting that the markets have reacted to that one paragraph in in, in Powell's speech. But I think, and you know, that paragraph, that that talk of expand or continuing the expansion, is exactly how he started the May press conference. So, to some extent, there's nothing new in what he said. Perhaps there's something new in what he didn't say, in that we've heard previously um, talk about there being no convincing signs for a need for a short-term movement one way or the other, and he didn't say that. And then I think if you layer on top of that the the wealth of Fed speakers that are coming out um, as we uh, approach the PERDA period for the FOMC. The message seems to be we are concerned about trade, there are uncertainties brewing, and that might impact the economy further along. And if it does, we will react. But for the short term, and bear in mind this is a message that has to govern for the the Fed's meeting in nearly two weeks' time now, that, I think, the message there is, for now, no change. Well, the risk is, David, two weeks out from a Federal Reserve meeting, the market's starting to hear what it wants to hear. The problem wait, wait, is. Wait a minute. Are we assuming a rate cut in two weeks? No, 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 no. no. We're not assuming a rate yeah, cut okay. in two weeks. Thank you. I, I think the risk is here that the market starts to believe, the bulk of market participants begin to believe that the Federal Reserve is coming their way. The risk is we go into the June meeting in two weeks and the summary of economic projections comes out and it hasn't come in enough down to market positioning. David, do you anticipate that spread coming in and, and to what degree? I think the lesser that that's going to be the lesser shock over the next month. I think the the two shocks that we're going to be watching at is firstly what happens with Mexico. Do we get these tariffs coming through? And bear in mind, yesterday we were also hearing a lot of news about the resistance to these tariffs um, from the Republicans. And secondly, what happens at that G20 meeting? So in that context, I would imagine the SEP is going to the summary economic projections are going to suggest that the Fed is considering lower rates by the end of the year. But that's not something that's going to be hard coded. And certainly, if trade moves in a different direction, well, the Fed will be flexible. First of all, I want to. Uh, suggest, folks, for those of you in America, the major risk, which is how many days does it take to have your body changed, John, if you have a full English breakfast every day? Are you having a full English I, every I'm day? I'm all full English, except for serious? that stupid piece of sausage I won't eat. And now, when you live here, Tom, you do that on a Sunday or a well, Saturday morning once a week. after a big night out. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's not something you should try and do every okay, day. Okay, I'll have granola tomorrow. <laughs> uh, David Page, the risk here, seriously, of all this is we have central bankers adapting to political philosophy and political policy as well. Where in the history books do we show that that can be successful? I'm not sure they are reacting to any political philosophy. I think they're really reacting to economic risks. And I think what the Fed assumes and what we certainly assume is that if you see tariffs rising against Mexico, tariffs rising against China, and you get an escalation of the trade war, you're going to have a negative shock to the economy. Well, what, what, what kind of U.S. number to get Jerome Powell to cut interest rates? Maybe he cuts interest rates in two weeks. I mean, is it a one-handle? Yeah, but- no, I, th- I think there is a risk 
there is a small risk that if you see the Mexican tariffs going ahead now and you see markets react negatively to that, that the Fed could be moving in two weeks' time. But we think that's very unlikely. So you uh, think June could well be a live meeting. I've heard this a couple of times over the last week. It's not an original thought. I, I just think it's still slightly contrarian. Do you think June could be a live we, meeting? We do like to practice original thoughts. But no, I think if you see developments moving, if you see Mexico um, seeing tariffs imposed on it, and you see a negative reaction of markets, yes, I think the Fed would consider cutting at that point. So we Do we have, think it happens? No. We have two interviews in the next 90 minutes or so right here on Bloomberg Radio. One will be with the Dallas Fed President, Robert Kaplan. Michael McKee will be catching up with him. Also catching up with the Chicago Fed President, Charles Evans, as well. What do you want to hear from the remaining Fed speakers through the next 24 hours? Because so far, the only one in the last week that has actually teed up the prospect of a rate cut and directly referenced it is Jim Bullard. Yeah, and we've seen Evans and Kaplan previously talking about need more time. So we would expect that's the message that the Fed is delivering, and that's what we go into this meeting expecting. What I'm saying is two weeks is a while. Markets are moving quite quickly. We could see we could see events change, but that's not our expectation. I think the Fed wants to see what happens with trade, and it will react accordingly. And we expect a relatively benign outlook from trade. We don't necessarily expect yeah. Mexican tariffs to come through as they as they look at the moment. We think there's a good chance you see some resolution with China. In that case, the Fed's in an awkward situation. You could see financial conditions ease, but the Fed's still considering insurance cuts. What is extraordinary to me, to John's mention of two good central bank interviews, is how different those central bankers are. Evans is a frontline monetary theorist, as is Vice Chairman Clarida. And, uh, and Dr. Kaplan is an interesting guy out of education. His, his important books on leadership and his work at Harvard is, well, is Powell beginning to learn how the Evans and the Claritas of the world think and operate? Well, very much so. I think Clarida has had quite a, a marked impact. And I think when we look at the, the pivot that the Fed put through at the back end of last year, other than being governed by significant tightening in financial conditions, there looked like there was some evidence of a, a Clarida view um, starting to come through this. So, yeah, I think Powell very much reflects the, the underlying um, statement, rather than perhaps driving policy individually in quite the same way right. as Yellen potentially did and Bernanke did. And Greenspan certainly did Will we did see that. a further asset inflation with lower interest rates, if they actually do rate cut, whether it's, what is it, two weeks, John, June 19th, or it's after that into September, do you just assume you follow on with the worry of Steve Roach, which is asset inflation? No, I think we're we're starting to worry a little bit more the other way. I think the Fed's going to struggle to get ahead of the market. The market's already pricing in three cuts for the Fed um, by early next year, possibly three by the end of this year. Yeah. I think the Fed has got to see some significant bad news to get that. Um, and if it doesn't cut by as much as that, the market's going to start to worry um, that it, it's still behind the curve. And I think that that becomes more yeah. of an issue. David, thank you so much. David Page of AXA here with some very thoughtful uh, discussion. Thank you, David. Stephanie Baker joins us uh, right now. And without question, Stephanie, the zeitgeist in Washington is not in Portsmouth. It's in Mexico City and the likelihood of tariffs. Republicans are saying to the president, no. Are people in the White House saying to the president, no? 
Well, it doesn't. The message uh, from the Hill doesn't seem to be getting through to Trump. Um, you know, he's tweeted out that he he's got the this worst, yeah the support of Republicans, but you know we're not seeing that uh, on the Hill. I think Lindsey Graham, um, Senator Lindsey Graham, has been the most vocal supporter of him. But it does look like the issue where. Uh, the Republicans might finally break with Trump yeah. and oppose um, either through an over, you know, they, uh, you know, they could override um, uh, his veto on this. They may have the numbers for it. It does look like they could. Um, what, what's so important, and John, I think this really bears repeating because I think a lot of Americans, including Tom Keene, don't get it. Our trade with Mexico compared to China, 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 China is ginormous. There's no other way to put it. The scale of this relationship is is something I think so many of us don't understand. Uh, exactly. Um, you know, this could have a huge impact because I think people don't really appreciate how much trade goes across the border, you know, a, a, and how complex the supply chain is. This is not just things that uh, are made in Mexico and being shipped to the U.S. The, there are parts going back and forth, being reassembled, um, you know, and, and I think that the fallout from it will, you know, impact uh, American consumers in a huge way. This can work both ways, of course. It's important for Mexico, too. And I actually think what's really interesting in the last 24 hours, the Mexicans believe they can satisfy, satisfy the president's demands in the next week or so. Stephanie, do you think they can? Well, I'm not clear what would satisfy Trump's demands. And that's important. And I don't think he's actually spelled out exactly what Mexico needs to do to head off these tariffs. Um, you know, is it a complete shutdown of immigration on the border? Well, exactly. He had three bullet points when this broke, John. And one of them was to, as you say, Stephanie, to shut down the southern border of Mexico with the three Central American states. I don't know how they affect that, but that was the granularity where the president was at one point. But how does he assess that exactly? I don't know. Or um, enforce it? Yeah, exactly. Don't know. I mean, you know, I I do think that there are a lot of question marks over you know, if he really wants to press ahead with this, shouldn't he be clearer about what exactly they need to do? Um, Which begs the question: Why the Mexicans seem to be so confident? On the surface of things, of course, we've got no ideas what's happening behind closed closed doors. But certainly in the statements they've made in the last couple of days. Tom, they sound very optimistic about getting something done and things being uh, optimistic okay. Optimistic or collegial. I'm not, you know, I, I agree with you. The tone has been very positive for Mexico. But to me, it's more collegial waiting for the president to get back from the, uh, the uh, uh, pomp and circumstance of your Great Britain. So the other thing we have to consider, we've heard the Republican pushback. We have to consider how realistic it is that they formalize that pushback. Stephanie, simply saying it is one thing. Doing something about it is quite different. Do you see them actually following through and formalizing that effort? Well, they could just pass a bill, um, you know, a fairly narrowly um, worded and defined bill pr trying to stop him from using tariffs uh, like this. Um, and that might be the simplest way uh, forward. Um, and I would expect, given the fallout that, mm -hmm. that you know, everyone is, is, is looking at from this, right. that they would press ahead with something like this. We have to help, uh, Stephanie, you have to help us with our surveillance question of the day. How many times a week should you have a full English breakfast? It's been our, One, I've uh, said once maximum. John said once maximum. On the weekend after a big night out. After three days in a row, I'm being chastised by any and all. I am the wrong person to ask this. I don't ever 
eat a full English. I'm 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 too health well, conscious. I don't, eat, I don't eat the full because I keep. What's the do thing? You, do you have everything fried? No. Do you have the, fried eggs no. and? Well, I have them over medium, but what's the thing that looks une- unedible? You think you're talking about the black pudding? Have you had the black pudding, Stephanie? I have. It's not my favorite, but yes, yes. I, you know, I'm ve- well versed in the black pudding. And you haven't, you haven't tried. No, it yet. God, no. It's and actually not bad. You might like it. Okay. I don't suggest okay. you eat that every Folks, morning. Folks, tomorrow morning I'm having a full English, and I mean full. Have you had a full <laughs> Scottish? Stephanie Baker. Have you had a full Scottish? You could have some haggis with that. With ice or without ice? <laughs> Stephanie Baker, thank you I'm so much. Let's squeeze in here an important conversation. The problem with Victoria Houston is every time she's on, we want to go longer, longer, longer <laughs> because she actually knows, John, what she's talking about, about trade like Calais, Dover. Will I get my Stilton cheese? She, she, unlike you the mean poli- she knows the stuff that you're interested in? No, whether you'll no, get your but cheese unlike the politicians, she's actually experienced in trade. Well, there were some bring in politicians that didn't know how important... Calais Dover was at one point, but that's a very different story. Victoria, great to see you. Institute of Economic Affairs, Senior Council, International Trade and Competition Union. Victoria, I want to reflect on what we've heard so far this morning. There are various Fed officials that are worried about the trade story. They're worried about the heightened risks that emanate from U.S. trade policy. The difficulty around this is the tensions persist, but it's unclear whether the risks materialize. How do you frame that at the moment? Well, it's really tough because as a supporter of free trade, there are lots of dangers and risks lurking in US current trade policy. And in particular, as you've alluded to, it's that things are pretty um, arbitrary and unpredictable. And um, President Trump is using powers that really weren't supposed to be related to day-to-day uh, trade policy, emergency powers, for example, as as we've been hearing about in connection with the Mexican border. So it's it's deeply unpredictable, yeah. and that's really where, where the risk is. In conjunction, of course, with what the UK is doing, where we can't say from, essentially, from one day to the next what UK We can't make policy any policy here is in the going United to Kingdom. Be. And I guess that's another problem in and of itself. Victoria, for the United States, there is an expectation almost at the moment that maybe we get some formalised resistance to the president's executive power around trade. Do you expect that to happen? (laughs) That's a tough one because, frankly, these executive powers are actually really deeply entrenched. And although the way they're being used at present by President Trump is um, being strongly criticised, actually these powers have been in place for decades and have equally been used by former presidents. Uh, again, as a supporter of free trade and the rule of law, I would be delighted if Congress was to take this in hand more. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't particularly see that happening imminently. We have too short a time with you today. And I just have one question. And when I knew you were coming in, I have only have one question. How do you respond to Brexit types who say no deal will not be a big deal? Does life go on three months after no deal where trade is normal? between in goods and services between the United Kingdom and everybody else? That's a that's a really tough question because part of the reason why Brexit supporters are taking the deeply entrenched 
position that they are and trying to say, oh, no deal, no problem, is that um, they're having to feel very defensive because on the other hand, we have the Remain supporters, the Ramonas, as, as we colloquially call them, who are taking the opposite view, which is that no deal would be World's going to come to an, end. A, an utter catastrophe. Oh. So people have really retreated to very entrenched diametric positions um, in order to essentially defend themselves. Now, I think the reality clearly lies somewhere in between those two positions. Okay. And actually, no deal would be a problem. It would cause um, serious problems for businesses in the short term. The The issue that I have is that the, the current government and the government that we've had for the past two years hasn't done enough to um, use sensible strategies of communication and policy that could have mitigated those effects. Okay. We have to leave it there just because of a news load. Victoria Houston, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so much. Senior Counsel to Trade and Competition Unit at IEA. Jim Carrot and Morgan Stanley's a genius. The Morgan Stanley call has been extraordinary. Mike Wilson pushing against the equity bull market, saying there will be some volatility. Things will be a bit difficult. Ellen Zentner with an arch slowdown in economics call. And then there's Jim Carrot and others driving for their fixed income call right now. Jim, what do you do if you've enjoyed capital gain in bonds? If I'm price up, yield down and I'm a winner. What do you do right now? Um, very interesting uh, question, Tom, and, and thank you for the introduction. Um, the, you, you know, the way I look at it is that 10-year Treasury yields are probably likely to hit that 2% level. That's not too far away from where we are right now. We're at 2.09 in the 10-year Treasury. But here's the way that we need to think about it. There are four key components that drive 10-year yields. One is your uh, change in growth expectations. Two is your change in inflation expectations. Three is your central bank outlook. And then the fourth is the risk premia or term premia, as we call it, in the bond market. All four of those components are weakening, meaning that growth expectations are falling, even inflation expectations, despite some tariff, maybe there might be a one-off pop in inflation, but that's it. Um, And the central bank outlook has turned more dovish which means that the demand, so I'm, now I'm talking about the risk premium, but the demand to own high-quality fixed-income treasuries is actually higher, so the risk yeah. premium is actually falling. So it's hard, to, it's hard to point where yields actually turn around, but I will say that you have to be very highly convicted that we are going to get a recession at some point in early 2020 if right. you want to own 10-year treasuries below 2%. What does credit and high yield signal if I'm a full faith in credit conservative investor? So when we look at investment grade right now and when we look at high yield, high yield default risk is is really low at this point. So we're not seeing a very um, concentrated area within the high yield markets or even in the credit markets that are having uh, you know big problems a- at all. So what it's saying is that what you want to do is you want to move up in quality, you want to earn some carry, you want to have some yield, but very, very important, you also want to have duration, and that's the gains from own- owning longer-term maturity bonds or the potential gains that you can get as, as rates fall from owning longer maturity bonds. So extending some duration, picking up some yield, and moving up in quality 
is going to be important. The high yield market and the investment grade market are not signaling anything distressful at this point. Spreads are tighter on the year. Performance so far, high yield is up almost 8% on a year-to-date basis. So we're not seeing signs of distress in those markets. So Jim, just to follow up on that, um, given that you suggest that a recession is, is possible in 2020, in the high yield market, um, are, how do you feel about the credit quality that you're seeing in the high yield market right now? Well, I mean, it, it, it really kind of depends, right? Because the high yield market is very, very interesting. We've seen more credit improvement within the high yield market. Don't forget, it's a much smaller market than we actually have seen in the investment grade market. In other words, investment grade uh, markets have been, have gravitated lower in quality towards more of the triple B level. So they've been going down in quality a little bit. But the high yield market, oddly enough, has had more upgrades than actually downgrades. So the high yield market, from a technical standpoint, and given that I believe the fundamentals are still okay right now, fundamentally looks still strong. The question that a lot of people have is that the investment grade market now has a very high concentration of triple Bs, and they don't have much room before they could possibly get downgraded into the high yield space. That's not our base case, but that's certainly a risk that's out there in the market. So, Jim, if I wanted more yield here, um, aside from the high yield market, do I even think about emerging markets? Uh, I think, yes, you do. Um, You know, there are certain emerging markets. uh, I I would be very specific about some. Um, There there are some markets that we like. I mean, I'd like to say I like Mexico, but there's too much political risk there. But fundamentally, I'm okay with Mexico if I just exclude all of the tariff, you know, things that are going on right now. So let's exclude that one. You know, let's talk about another one. Let's talk about Brazil. Brazil is a very interesting market. Bond yields have been going down in Brazil. And the central bank, I think, there has full, full ability to cut interest rates at, uh, you know, at a reasonably aggressive pace if they need to stimulate their economy. And I believe that much of the dislocations with U.S., China, and trade have, have, have effectively played through. And there's very strong demand from the pension fund community in Brazil for their local bonds. So there are emerging markets that look good. Eastern Europe. Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, single A rated bonds. These are all like uh, high beta euros, if you want to, euro bonds, if you want to think of it in that sense, meaning that they're exposed to to Europe, but don't have as much exposure to China. So different parts of emerging markets, being very selective can actually, you can actually have some very attractive opportunities. Too short a conversation, Jim Curran, don't be a stranger. We need to get you in the crack of dawn on Bloomberg Surveillance. And now joining us to begin another season of Peer to Peer, David Rubenstein joins us. Important interviews, as I've said many times on this air, his interview with Jeff Bezos ages ago, I'll say a year ago, was absolutely extraordinary. David Rubenstein joins us this morning. David, Melinda Gates, and what I think is so outstanding about Melinda Gates is it's never been about Melinda Gates. Her work is, you know, in support of her husband and the two of them at Microsoft and meeting at Microsoft, but their approach to philanthropy literally has taught rich people how to give away money. What did she say about the first moment where she and Bill said, this is the way we're going to give away the pot? 
Well, when they uh, first got married, uh, they were still focused on Microsoft. She actually worked at Microsoft for about, yeah. uh, I think, five years after they were married. And then after their first child, I believe she decided to retire from Microsoft. And they were not that involved in philanthropy, uh, relatively speaking, compared to what they are today in the early year, years. But when Bill retired from Microsoft as the CEO, he became, in effect, the CEO of his foundation, which was called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they became partners. And uh, she describes in, the, in her new book how they worked together, and it's obviously a little complicated. She points out that sometimes there was some tension over what she was going to do and what he was going to do. But a large part of the book, which is an excellent book, I highly recommend it, is about how she's focused on women's issues, um, contraception, uh, and among other things, uh, helping women uh, learn how to be uh, better farmers because women are often the, the farmers in many parts of the world for their families, Le- learning uh, women how to be uh, avoid abusive relationships and uh, things like that. And so she, her main point is that if women are empowered, better educated, treated better, uh, the world will be better off because they'll be more productive citizens yeah. and, and, and so forth. So it's a terrific, terrific book, and the interview is very, very uh, revealing. Uh, she reveals how they met, uh, which is interesting, how they get along, how they've had some of their uh, marital problems, like anybody else when I say marital problems. And I mean things where she would say, let's do this, and Bill would say, I'm not sure I really want to do that, and then ultimately they work it out. So it's an extraordinary No, 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 close. come on, David. No, she says do this, Bill says no, and so then they do what she says, right? <laughs> well, she's uh, managed to work it out so that I yeah. think it's, in yeah. my view, an extremely uh, happy, close yeah. relationship. And look, for being married to the wealthiest person in the world is never probably going to be easy, uh, but she's managed to pull that off yes. quite well. And, and they are partners in a way that uh, very few married couples truly are, are equal partners. So, David, the, the Gates Foundation is not just the Gates money. It's also Warren Buffett's. How did that all come about? Uh, it was a surprise to them. Warren Buffett had, had originally planned to give his money to a foundation that his wife would oversee. She predeceased him, and so he wasn't quite sure what to do. And ultimately, in a typical Warren Buffett fashion, he came up with a very creative idea. He would give the money to the Gates Foundation because he was they were doing things that he thought were, were good, and they were going to be around a lot longer than, than he was to oversee the dispensing of the money. And they were surprised. In fact, they walked around uh, after their words in their neighborhood and, and really cried about the fact that, that he had so much confidence in them that he was going to give them the bulk of his fortune to give away. Um, he didn't want his name on the foundation. He is on the board, but he basically lets them uh, dispense the money in the ways they think are appropriate. So, David, what did Melinda say as to, I guess, the one or two key areas that the foundation is going to focus on going forward, given the tremendous resources that they right. do have? The foundation has focused on uh, two main issues over the years. One is um, helping poor people, people in the poorest parts of the the world, with health and improving their health because that will enable them, obviously, to live longer. So vaccines, malaria uh, prevention, other kinds of things that help poor people, often in Africa, sometimes in Latin America, other parts of Southeast Asia, how these people are able to uh, get better health treatment and therefore enable them to live longer and better lives. And the second major issue has been K-12 education in the United States. I think they would say they've probably made more progress on health in uh, the poorest yeah. areas in the world than K-12 in the United States. Now, Melinda has basically developed a separate part of what they do, which is to help um, empower women. And her book is largely about that. Did so she... I did think she... that... Uh, 
they are trying to solve the problems of the world. Uh, no two people can solve the problems of the world. They yeah. don't have enough money to solve every problem. But they've made a big impact. And they, and with Warren Buffett, came up with the idea for the Giving Pledge, where now more than 200 people from around the world have agreed to give away at least half of their net worth to philanthropic purposes. And I think that set a pattern for people who are not as wealthy as the people who've signed that pledge, but many other people are doing more exactly. and more in philanthropy. Well, I, you know, so, I, op- I opened with that, David, and it, it's extraordinary to me how they have changed the dialogue of philanthropy. Have they gotten that message out I mean, a lot of people go after the rich people, but I would suggest in America there's a sense of philanthropy like we've never seen. Yes, I like to remind people that philanthropy is an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So you can love humanity by giving your time, your energy, your ideas, and your money if you have it. The most valuable thing you can give is your time. You can never get your time back. You can always make more money, presumably, but you can't get your time back. And many people who have done great philanthropic things are not considered philanthropists. So Wendy Kopp, who created Teach for America, in my view, is a great philanthropist, but she didn't give him a lot of money. It was her idea and her time and her energy. And I think their view at Bill and Melinda Gates is everybody isn't going to be as fortunate as they are in terms of having financial resources, but you can do a lot more uh, than just give away money, and I think they encourage people to do that. This is wonderful. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer with Melinda Gates. And again, I can't say enough, folks, as uh, Mr. Rubenstein mentions their uh, courage in health philanthropy and particularly in polio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.